Your story is very interesting because you come from the belly of the beast. Realize that everything that I was told is a lie. I'm not the good guy in the story. Today's guest is Ronnie Barkon, anti-Zionist, Israeli dissident. He's currently facing trial with eight other activists for smashing up Elbit headquarters in Bristol. I didn't define myself as a Zionist, but as long as I didn't oppose it, I was part of it. No one to talk. I didn't even know terms like conscientious objection. Israeli society is a totally brainwashed society. There is not an iota of democracy, totally fascist, other than the handful of dissidents. The younger generations are actually more fascist than the older generations. Talk about occupation. Which occupation? That of 67 or that of 48? Zionism is a cult. Anyone who has come out of Zionism, that involves a psychological process. BDS campaign, pressure has to be applied from the outside in order to change the situation inside. There's a whole system of oppression and subjugation and terror that has to be abolished. There's no other way. Doctrination, militarization in Israeli society begins at a very young age. You got to cut your own umbilical cord. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you banned bread from Palestinian prisons, but you're built like dough. <laughs> come on, that's good. <laughs> Did you just come up with that? Yes. That's, that's really good. Hey, before Thank we you so get much. In- I'm a writer. <laughs> before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional podcast per week called the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is Ronnie Barkon, an anti-Zionist, Israeli dissident, and lifelong activist who has been struggling to end over seven decades of ongoing crimes against humanity by the Zionist apartheid state. He's currently facing trial with eight other activists for smashing up Elbit headquarters in Bristol. Ronnie, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Hi, thank you for having me. Where do we even start with you? There are so many, so many interesting things. You've been involved in so many amazing actions over the years. Your story is very interesting because you come from the belly of the beast, grew up in the apartheid state, and yet you became a fierce advocate against Zionism and against Israeli crimes against humanity and oppression of Palestinians. Maybe let's start at the beginning. You've spoken about how the indoctrination and the militarization in Israeli society begins at a very young age. It's essentially when with children. So can, can you start from there and tell us what it was like growing up from a very young age in this society? I grew up in a family that is not uh, too political, not, not too politically aware, but not too political in general. Uh, so my parents, to this day, don't really understand the concept of, like, why would someone go to demonstrate? At the same time, I did have uh, the opportunity to uh, develop my own views without too much restrictions. But Israeli society is a totally brainwashed society. We can also say that it is totally fascist, supremacist, and more and more. Zionism, I regard it either as a cult or as a form of mental disorder. And that applies to everyone who is part of that society, other than the handful of dissidents, and we all know each other by name. For anyone who has managed to come out of Zionism, to transition from Zionism into humanism, that involves a psychological process. Mine was relatively uneventful. I mean, I think it was quite easy for me. I was lucky, basically, not to be too affected. Just, I was just a little bit brainwashed, not too much. And uh, that veil of ignorance was lifted. Other people, I know that they've been struggling with that for decades. And some of them still do. They, they, it's an ongoing thing. I love the way that Elon Pape talks about his kind of realization uh, when he came out of uh, Zionism. And my process was uh, pretty straightforward. But as he said, we are being trained to be soldiers from kindergarten. Actually, even before kindergarten, I just saw recently this ad for a... How is it called? Neonatal clinic or or basically a, a, a maternity hospital. And the ad for that maternity hospital says, you see a baby in the womb with a 
beret of the military beret yes you can puke later i hear that you got to cut your own umbilical cord <laughs> nice one so figuratively speaking uh you do if you want to transition from like i said from zionism to humanism that that cord uh, and it's mostly a psychological uh, kind of it's all based on social pressure and so on that's a very serious thing to overcome those who consider themselves liberal and zionists uh, they have a much harder time coming out of zionism liberal zionism what is that like biodegradable bullets <laughs> pretty much yeah liberal supremacists kill a person plant a tree yeah uh yeah. You, you know about how how you have the you know the idf already like a problem with the acronym itself but uh i call it itf but uh idf uh, being uh the most vegan friendly army you can yeah. get uh you know wool-free berets and uh, and leather-free boots in order to kill palestinians and i used to pick up my niece from kindergarten nieces and a nephew uh when i used to pick them up from kindergarten you can see the whole brainwashing right there i mean the whole it, you have this it, it's it's a standardized thing um, at the entrance you would have this thing called my saying my israel and there's the picture of the military chief of staff the picture of the Prime Minister, the President, a map, my Israel, with no borders, of course. And it's better that there are no borders there because the borders are actually very deceptive. So it's better if they don't differentiate between the two parts of Palestine. And uh, and you have all these uh, stereotypical imagery there. So in the Negev, in the Nakab, in the South, you would have like camels and things like that. Obviously, uh, tying in everything, the, the Hatikva, the anthem, which is a racist, supremacist uh, anthem with the with a map with the military uh, they celebrate all kinds of like military related stuff already in kindergarten so this is what i'm talking about when when i say that there is a social pressure that's kind of a little difficult to overcome i went through all of that still not being too much of a zionist just a little bit i didn't define myself as a zionist but you know I, as long as i didn't oppose it i was part of it and by high school i was contemplating whether i'm willing to serve in the army or not because military service is obligatory, three years for men, two years for, for women. I was also thinking about becoming vegetarian at the time. Nowadays, I'm vegan. Then I went to university after high school because that was another way for me to postpone that decision. So I studied physics and maths, and I had literally no one to talk to. There was no one that I didn't even know terms like conscientious objection. It, it, I, I, didn't, I never heard it anywhere. I did try to interact with a few groups that were supposedly on my side no one wanted to help and eventually i did find myself getting drafted into the army because i couldn't convince myself not to get drafted because of that social pressure because we're being told that you know if you don't serve in the army you're some sort of a parasite or a traitor so two months into the army i didn't do anything by the way luckily all i did was sit in a library and read about missiles because they wanted me as a someone who studied physics they wanted me to be responsible for some anti-tank missile project. So luckily, all I did was read about missiles for two months. And then I had this eureka moment, this realization, which was, it's time to leave the army. So I realized that I have a choice in the matter. I'm a human being. I don't care about all the rest. I'm no longer an Israeli. I'm a human being, and that's more than enough. And if there is anything that I can be a traitor of is a traitor of humanity. So, you know, I I side with universal values. Uh, and, and from that moment on, I stopped being uh, in Israeli and the rest is very simple because the situation is so oh so simple but I don't consider myself an Israeli sure. by law I'm defined by the Zionist state I'm by the apartheid state I'm defined as a privileged Israeli Jew by law because I have an Israeli citizenship but among the privileged group we don't there is no such thing as an Israeli nationality the privileged group have Jewish as their nationality and all the others who don't have Jewish as the nationality they're the underprivileged and this is how the entire state was founded on that very specific uh, distinction. Uh, so even though I don't consider myself as an Israeli or Jewish, uh, this is my legal status. You don't consider yourself Jewish? No, I'm a human being. I don't care about the rest. Okay. But uh, what I do consider, what I do have an issue with, is any and all conflation between criminal supremacist Zionism and Judaism, which is a religion. So I'm here to defend Judaism for the sake of not conflating it with Zionism. Uh, so this is my knowledge of Judaism is because of that, because uh, I have to challenge this uh, false conflation between the two things.
Totally understood. I have a friend who grew up in the apartheid state and she talked to me about the indoctrination that began at a very young age. And she told me that it was common for sort of military reenactments or um, or acting out as soldiers to take place in, in schools from a very early age. She told me that visits from the military were very common, even you know in kindergarten. When I was in Palestine, I witnessed the military accompanying school field trips. So they'd you know, they'd be walking around town with their weapons, like fully armed, like accompanying school children, which I found very bizarre. Mm-hmm. And when I asked around, you know, the I sort of pretended, you know, not to know what was happening, right? And I, what, what's going on here? It's like, oh, well, they, you know, it's to protect them. And then you end up questioning why do these school children need protection in supposedly the safest place on earth for Jewish people, right? So I did find that very strange, just the constant presence of of the military in all aspects of daily life, and you know, at at, at all ages, the interaction, the 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 support for the admiration, it, it really is everywhere you look. I also remember seeing a billboard for an ad for jam, and it was like a mother like preparing a sandwich for her son in the military, and it was like buy this jam because this jam will keep your military son fed better than the other jams. You know, it's everywhere. His gun won't jam. There is a whole exhibition that uh, we had in the past about uh, how military, the military infiltrates everyday life. I used to be part of a group called uh, New Profile, which is about civilizing Israeli society, transforming it from the society of soldiers to a society of civilians. So we used to have this exhibition, including such ads. You will find it everywhere. In Israel, they sell everything on TV, etc. All the ads would be either selling things with sex or with the military, or both. But uh, you see, for example, just like the jam story, there's cottage cheese, which they used to demonstrate about like 12 years ago, where the so-called struggle for social justice started span out of this uh, because the staple food like i know this cottage cheese uh, uh, the prices uh, rose and it was about that so this is regarded as something very israeli and uh, you see in the ad uh, two soldiers uh, kind of uh, you know sitting at home in over the weekend because over the week they are in their respective military units and they are in opposing military units but they sit at home with a uniform and sharing this cottage cheese. So, you know, this is and this is the home kind of cottage is literally like the home. That's how they sell it. It's very it's bizarre. It's very bizarre. And it shouldn't be normalized at all. And I think it's important to tell those stories because it's mundane in Israeli society, but outsiders don't often know what's happening internally. I think most Americans don't realize the extent of militarization. And so I think it's really important to to share these anecdotes. The United States is a heavily militarized society. So they're not super concerned when they see another hyper-militarized society, especially if they're constantly being told how friendly we are. Is, but are we selling jam with soldiers? Like, I don't know. Oh, yeah, dude. I have a friend who literally writes ads for a company called black rifle coffee okay you know what i mean like i might have to bleep that out because no free promo but yeah, true. <laughs> i was kind of well not shocked but uh i was raising an eyebrow when i landed uh, in the u.s for the first time like in bc and uh, i saw these like huge ass flags and flags everywhere and in the airport you can you know give some money for the for the next uh, serviceman who who will want a hot meal or something like that yeah and you know being in, in front in the line and yeah it's it's almost as bad as in uh design estate i think but our our school yeah. children are not being accompanied on field trips by right. soldiers bearing weapons well not anymore now now that we're all integrated huh <laughs> right? right so that's yeah. a great history joke all us military personnel if you were called if i will call them terrorists which i just did then some of the viewers will have issues with that no we call them terrorists here they're terrorists if you serve in the U.S. military, you're a terrorist. And shout out to AOC for her terrorist recruitment event recently. That, that was very weird. I don't know what what she's on. I don't get it. Girl boss. Girl no, boss really, shit. Sometimes, you know, I wake up and I see what she does and I'm like, great. Good for you. Thank you for doing that. And then other times I'm like, what is happening? So, Ronnie, did you have to spend time in prison for stepping down from 
the military? Yeah, how'd you so, get out of the military? I didn't spend time in military prison. It took much longer to get out of there because once you're in the system, it's very difficult to get out. And uh, the other thing is that I didn't play the game. I mean, uh, most people who get out of the army, they do so uh, for mental health reasons. I mean, you can only get out for health reasons or mental health reasons, or you can refuse and then you're being sent to prison and then you refuse that order. And, and over and over again, a few cycles of some weeks in, in military prison, and eventually uh, that person will be released for being inadequate for the system. These are pretty much the only ways to get out. I just sat there and I said, I'm not part of this. It's not my problem. It's yours. You can do whatever you want. But that was good enough. Because I was making eye contact, I wasn't too depressed or, or anything like that, suicidal and so on. So uh, I didn't give them any anything to work with. Uh, I just went with my truth. And that meant that it took me a year and a half of fighting the system until I eventually managed to get out of there. At the same time, I didn't go to prison, even though I never showed up. Once I realized that I'm no longer a soldier, that's it. I wasn't. I was no longer a soldier. But then I was reassigned to another unit, and the person who was responsible for reassigning me, she saw I was a nice person, and she asked me, what do you want to do in the army? I said, what is she? Like, I'm not going to do anything in the army. The only thing I'm going to do is to get out of here. So she offered me to stay in her office while I do my best to get out of there. So she would report me to her superiors, and I went out of the radar for a year and a half until I eventually managed to get out for mental health reasons. I went through tens of different doctors and then tens of different uh, military psychologists and all sorts of committees that I came up with and that I found out along the way and no one wanted to release me until eventually someone did. You get out of the army. How do you get involved in... Palestine activism. The moment I came out of Zionism, the rest was very easy for me. So while still trying to get out of the army, I was already in touch with uh, a group, this group that I mentioned before about civilizing Israeli society and supporting conscientious objectors. I learned the term by then. And then I started demonstrating with them, even in front of that military base where I was supposed to serve. The most leftist thing that I could find back then, which is horrible, like all these liberal Zionist organizations like Bush Shalom and uh, Peace Now, which are the worst of the worst. But that's what I, I didn't know better back then, and there wasn't any other options. Uh, so already back then, I, I took part in supporting conscientious objectors. The very next thing, when Anarchists Against the Wall came into being, direct action group in Palestine, then uh, I joined and we went uh, weekly to demonstrate in the West Bank and elsewhere. Um, and, and same thing, the moment that the BDS campaign came up, uh, we... Uh, put together a group of conscientious Israelis who support the Palestinian call uh, for BDS, which the short name is called Boycott from Within. The longer name is Boycott Supporting the Palestinian Call from Within, uh, which is uh, not about us coming up with a campaign, but actually about us, the privileged group, supporting the underprivileged group in their just struggle. Later on, I also helped to found another BDS group, uh, BDS in Hebrew, of uh, conscientious Israelis. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so, so the rest was very... Straightforward as far as, as, as I was concerned. Going to demonstrate in the West Bank or across Palestine. And whenever I went to speak abroad, it was obvious that I have to speak about BDS and whatever pressure has to be applied from the outside in order to change the situation inside. So there's the struggle from within and the struggle from without. It is interesting how the guy who's trying to get out of the institution that murders and maims and steals land and commits ethnic cleansing on a daily basis has to be interviewed by dozens of psychologists to see what's wrong with him. It's, it's a bizarre premise, isn't it? Right? The, the, the majority you hit, of the people you hit that are... the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah that the majority it's of It's a people... catch-22 thing. You know, because yeah. you, 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 in order to get out of the out of the military, you have to show that you are somehow, uh, um, what, how do we call it, insane? I don't know what the word would be, but actually, you have to be insane in order to serve in the army to begin with. The only sane people are the ones who are insisting not to be part of that system. So, yeah, it's a it's a difficult and. Um, it's Weird. a trip because it shows yeah. you what, what the society values, right? The, 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 the presumption, the, the underlying assumption is that the society values the military. The military is good. The occupation is good. Force is good. And anything that stands against that is bad and psychologically suspect and needs to be assessed by a physician, right? So it's it's yeah. a very sick society. Well, you know Zionists are about to clip you saying the occupation is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean have you had throughout your entire experience especially becoming public with your views have you been in discussion with some people that are part of the government have you have you gone 
you know, face to face, whether debates or have they reached out to you? Are you because I read somewhere that Netanyahu himself referred to one of the groups that you started as a quote unquote national scandal. Apparently he said this about boycott from within. He said it's a national scandal. So have you ever been in touch with any of these high level apartheid leaders? I went to the Knesset to disrupt a hearing that was during a UN Rights Day and it was held by these liberal Zionist groups, all the horrible, horrible organizations like ACRI, the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, which is at the forefront of protecting apartheid and all the others. And yeah, I challenged them about how the whole place is wholly illegitimate. Uh, and this is an apartheid state. There's not any iota of democracy. And the main threat to Palestinian rights are actually those so-called self-proclaimed liberals, peace-loving, uh, those who are cons- Zionists who are supposedly concerned about human rights. And there were also some Palestinian members of Knesset in that hearing that I uh, disrupted, uh, which are just as bad. There, at, at best, they are fig leaves for apartheid. That was my interaction with the Israeli uh, authorities. I mentioned that there is not an iota of democracy, and Israel was built as an apartheid state. It is a race state that practices the crime of apartheid since its very foundation, since its very first day. As you know, as the audience knows, there was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, which was the very foundational element of the Zionist state. Actually, it started even before the the official foundation of the state. We just marked 10th of March was a 75 years to plan Dalit, which was the official uh, plan to ethnically cleanse the land. And they started ethnically cleansing even before that. By the time that the Zionist state was founded, already one third of the population was already ethnically cleansed. And one third of those who were eventually uh, expelled. The next thing that they had to do is to make sure that those who have been expelled will never be allowed to come back. And those who remain, because they didn't manage to expel everyone, will never ever be allowed equal standing. That's how it was founded. From the very beginning, it was all about racial supremacy and racial privileges for one group at the expense of all the others, especially if they are the indigenous people. And this is for that very purpose they needed uh, the parliament. And this is the role of the parliament, basically, to enforce that and to legislate these laws. However, unlike apartheid South Africa, they built a much more sophisticated form of apartheid, which, you know, the case of apartheid South Africa, which started also in 1948, was quite literally a case of black and white, whereas the Zionist form of apartheid has a two-tiered system where there is apartheid throughout the land, uh, but there is also this kind of veneer of normality and people fall for that trap over and over again. So if I wanted to democratize the place, if I wanted to, say, establish a political party that seeks democracy in Palestine, I would be barred from even running for elections. By law, basic law, the Knesset, Article 7a says that if a political party or an individual running for the parliament uh, negates Israel as a quote-unquote Jewish and democratic state, which is a euphemism for Zionist and apartheid. If they negate Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, they cannot even run for elections. And the UN report on apartheid by Tilly and Falk use that, like kind of refer to that, and they say that this is akin to allowing slaves to vote, but not in order to abolish slavery. So that, that brings us a little bit to what's happening right now, the, the weekly protests to shake up the state of affairs and to protest this judicial reform. Can you give us your thoughts about this? I mean, I know what they are, but <laughs> I think I know what they are, but but let's talk about it anyway. The Israeli Supreme Court, they're the ones whose job is to, leg- it was to uh, legitimize everything. I said the parliament, there's no really like suppression of powers, but the parliament is the one legislating and so on. What they're seeking now is to kind of to merge the two things together so there will be even less of a separation of powers between the two. There's the Shinbet, which is above the law. They do pretty much whatever they want. And they are so, so you understand that there's all these like different aspects of the system that are all about maintaining ethnic racial supremacy. And I mentioned the Shinbet, so let me give you an example. When they were challenged in court at some point about interviewing people like myself, and obviously they especially do this to Palestinians, but also I was called into a Shinbet talk a couple of times. Then basically when they were challenged in court, they said that they are monitoring anyone who is acting against the Jewish character of the state, even if they do it legally. This is what the security apparatus of the state says. And if you want to quote Golda Meir, the so-called feminist, so-called leftist, then when there was a discussion about mixed marriages, Jews marrying non-Jews in the land, then she uh, compared it to the Holocaust. She said, one calamity has already hit us. Now, when we have our own state, we should do as much as we can 
to make sure that these numbers remain very low. This is why you can only have religious weddings in Israel, by the way. Uh, and she said that this challenging, the whole issue of mixed marriages, uh, is a matter of state security and linked to it. And without this, nothing else matters. She was known to bring up the Holocaust if you asked her about the weather. Part of the the problem is when you have a state, there is this veneer of legitimacy because it's a state, it's sovereign. A state has the right to defend itself because it exists as a state and it's been accepted as a state by other states. And when you talk about institutions, institutions are legitimate because they're institutions. So they must follow some sort of a procedure and process and everything, you know, must be operating in some sort of a, a civilized way. These different pieces of the state of Israel don't operate like any other state because they are operating with a purpose, which is to maintain the Zionist nature of the state, which inherently is it, it's a racist goal. And so then those different pieces, instead of occupying the function of, you know, a legislative branch, executive branch, a judicial branch, and the ways that we know of, the, you know, we, we know them to be, they take on a very sinister nature. Because then you have the judiciary, for example, ruling on cases to take away Palestinian land, to steal land from Palestinians, and then to transfer it over to Israelis for the purpose of building more settlements. But it's done through process. You know, sometimes it's done by brute force without any process, but sometimes it's done by brute force with those carrying it out saying, I have a court order from a military court or from a Zionist court, a civil court, whatever it may be. And I think that is something that people really need to understand is that it's an occupation, but it's an occupation that is propped up by the very institutions of the state that that was created on the ruins of of, of all these Palestinian homes and it's not legitimate just because it you know it's a court or just because it's a, a parliament or just because it's a president uh, you know Netanyahu was visiting the UK just yesterday right and he was received with open arms because he's the leader of a state but he's the leader of the apartheid state of our time he's also a war criminal and someone who's been charged with corruption and crimes against humanity so when we talk about war criminal i want to up the scale and say no we, we are we're talking about more than war, cri war crimes we're talking about crimes against humanity apartheid and possibly genocide these are among the most serious crimes you know i'm facing a trial soon uh, and this as far as i'm concerned the most important legal argument i don't care about the rest there's also other legal yeah. arguments but the most important thing is that there is something that is akin to genocide which is apartheid which is defined as a crime against humanity in the Rome Statutes. That means that every international body is obligated to stop that, certainly not to lend it legitimacy. And also uh, us as individuals or as uh, organizations and so on have at least a moral responsibility, if not uh, a legal responsibility, to stop that. Also, when we talk about occupation, which occupation? That of 67 or that of 48? Because people like to think, and, and you know, I challenge a lot of this propaganda Going back to liberal Zionism, liberal Zionist propaganda, the most dangerous form of Zionism is liberal Zionism. The most, the greatest tool of propaganda that Israel has is what's called Haaretz newspaper. And I actually like to say that uh, when we liberate Palestine, I think we have to mark that day by the day that we close the offices of Haaretz newspaper. It, they are as sinister as that because people who think that this is some, the, the problem is the occupation, what they call the occupation, that of 67, that means that you can overcome that occupation. You can tweak it, you can have the, both sides sit together, find some sort of a resolution, a diplomatic resolution to that quote-unquote conflict. If we understand that the occupation is from 1948 and apartheid and ethnic cleansing and the Nakba, which is ongoing, uh, and on and on, all these crimes are ongoing since 48 to this very day, then we understand that there is a whole system of oppression and subjugation and terror that has to be abolished. There's no other way. If you have slavery, you have to abolish slavery. It's as simple as that. You cannot tweak the system. You have to abolish it. So demanding equality, demanding full rights for all is the most radical notion that you can have. At the moment, you have 7 million people who are controlling the lives of the other 14 million, half of which are in forced exile for the past seven decades. And the whole legal system is built in order to to enforce that, whether it's the military legal system or the 
a civilian legal system, whether it's in this part or that part of Palestine, that's what it is about. You said you can't tweak slavery, and then private prison owners were like, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, so I have issues with, you know, and there are very well-meaning pro-Palestinian folks who reiterate part of that discourse of lies. I think it is counterproductive, to say the least, because if we only focus on the occupation, we're not only missing the point, we are doing something that is potentially dangerous because it's not only the occupation stupid. It's not only that occupation of 67, as brutal and as barbaric as it is, and it is brutal and barbaric and genocidal. But even then, even if we overcome that military occupation, we are still not dealing with the actual issue, which is the establishment of a Zionist race state on top of and at the expense of Palestine, on top of Palestine, the extent of Palestinians. And to overcome that, to demand equality, to bring about equality, that involves a whole other set of tools. When we talk about the occupation, we talk about it in its entirety, 1948 included, with the the understanding that uh, today the international legal community understands the occupation in the international law sense, i.e. the occupation, the military occupation, of the 1967 Palestinian territories. But you're absolutely right that there is no distinction between what happened in 1948 and what happened in 1967. The results for the Palestinians, whether you live in 1948 or you lived in in the areas that were occupied in 1967, is the same. It's the dispossession of their land. It's the theft of their homes. It's the exact same thing. The people who lived in the cities and villages that were that became Israel in 1948 were expelled. People who who lived in the areas which were occupied in 1967, many of them were expelled too. Yeah. But and so and so, in terms of concrete results and consequences for the Palestinians, there is no difference. And so we shouldn't make a, an artificial distinction because of uh, the point in time in which it happened. It's all the continuation of the same original crime, which was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And also about numbers. Half of half of the Palestinians are uh, refugees in forced exile, and there's also the millions who are IDPs, uh, internally displaced. So, you know, when when again going back to these well-meaning pro-Palestinian folks who uh, at the time there was the march of return in Gaza, and they were talking about that Gazans are struggling against the barbaric siege. Yes, they were struggling against the barbaric siege, but but they the march of return was not only about that; it was also about their right to return home. March of return. Of, oh, it's called the march exactly, of return. Return to exactly where? Exactly what? Exactly. Return so, so, to so where this, they were expelled from. Right. That's the whole point precisely. that people that they don't understand is that Gaza is a prison, is a cage for people whose houses you're living in. You're living in their houses. Because the majority of the people who are living in Gaza today are refugees from 1948. They were expelled so that you can now live and establish yourself and walk around and drive around 1948, so-called Israel. And demonstrate with Israeli flags. And demonstrate with Israeli flags and hold up signs that say democracy one week and hold up signs that say we're coming to commit a second Nakba the next week, right? Psychologically, for them, they are losing their democracy. They are fighting in order to save Israeli democracy. Because, obviously, Israel is becoming more and more fascist, explicitly fascist. It's always been fascist, but it's becoming more explicitly so. And they are uh, afraid of of losing even um, that sense of normality that they enjoy, and now even that thin layer is being eroded. And that is scary for them, but that's not the issue. That's not the main issue. That's just emblematic to something that's far greater than that. They are looking around at Palestinians in checkpoints, bodies on the floor, and they're like, I'm worried about voting. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. If it's going to inconvenience me, now it's a problem. But you know what? The United States has run cover for the occupation's crimes for so long that it's like allowed for this like fascist bubble to rise to a place where even they can sense it even like the the vibes are so off even they are like "Mm, maybe something's wrong the united states in a a, a leaked state department memo explicitly acknowledged that the u.s government policy is to ignore human rights violations of u.s aligned nations like the occupation 
while attacking them in nations like China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. Yeah, I don't need a leaked State Department memo to tell me that. that you just have to read the news. They're like Buddy Ron, and it's like, okay, just relax for a second. I want to go back to this uh, idea of liberal Zionism because it does fascinate me, the mental gymnastics and the perpetual state of contradiction that you have to live in to adopt this ideology. And, you know, on the one hand, there are people who are on a path and liberal Zionism is some sort of a place on that journey, eventually away from Zionism, but they stop there because they think that might be where the solution is before moving on and realizing, no, it has to be anti-Zionism. That's the only way. But I think for others, they get stuck there and they really do think that that can take place, that you can, you can be um, a liberal Zionist, that you can be a Zionist and, 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 and calling on calling for human rights and progressive values and things of this nature. Um, how much of Israeli society do you think exists in this sort of like liberal Zionist sphere? My impression is that they're not even really that relevant, that most of them are openly fascist and aggressively so, and that even this liberal Zionist chunk is not even that pervasive. But why don't you give us an, get an idea. I agree with that. I'm happy to say that uh, the liberal Zionists within uh, what's known as Israel is uh, are uh, diminishing in values. Uh, you see in the recent elections, and I never follow the elections, I couldn't care less about that, but since everyone is talking about it, in the recent elections, Meretz, which is the liberal Zionist party, didn't even pass the, uh, the threshold. So they're out of the council. The other party that dis- didn't pass the threshold was uh, Balad, uh, Tajama which I'm quite happy about it because even though they are well-meaning, possibly the only well-meaning uh, Palestinian members of Knesset, uh, like I said before, at best, they are acting as fig leaves uh, for apartheid. By their very presence, they legitimize the illegitimate. Israel is the only country in the world where the the younger generations are actually more fascist and more right-wing than the the older generations like if you're thinking about it from a brainwashing perspective you manage to influence entire generations and like early on you manage to shape their reality with lies like with utter propaganda it's something that goebbels would be very impressed with you see okay the thing is that many people see through the lies of liberal zionists see through the lies of liberal zionists because they they don't have anything you know, any ground to stand on. In other words, I see only two types of Zionists in the world. Never came across a third option. One are the honest Zionists, the ones who are racist and proud of it. The ones who say, yes, there was the ethnic cleansing, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. People like Benny Morris, who helped to uncover the crimes of the Nakba, but at the same time, he says, literally, that the greatest problem is that Ben-Gurion hasn't finished the job, that he hasn't expelled all Palestinians from Palestine, because then, once they were be all outside of Palestine, then problem solved. And he says in that interview that he knows that this kind of would not sit well with the liberals among the readers and so on. Um, but these are the honest Zionists. Uh, we don't have discussions or we don't have a disagreement about the facts. We have disagreements about moral issues. The other type of Zionists are the so-called liberals who consider themselves Zionist and moral at the same time. And for that purpose, they need to have a Palestinian state. And I'm quoting a liberal Zionist now, he says, we need to have a Palestinian state, not because we like them, not because they deserve it, but because this is existential for us. If we are not the majority, we cannot dictate anything. The whole issue of not having a Palestinian partner that is like a distraction he says, I can describe a situation where we will establish a Palestinian state without a Palestinian partner, and we have enough military power to do it, quote unquote. For liberal Zionists, in order to maintain their cherished supremacist state, while still thinking that they live in a democracy, they must all the time play the game of demographics. And speaking the, ling- the language of demographics is the most racist language of all. This is what every single liberal Zionist organization is doing from Acre to J Street. And we can talk about Peter Weinart if you want. He is still on his way to becoming humanist. Far from it, but but he's on his way. You said that liberal Zionism is kind of a transition for people. I think for some people, I I think for some people, for some people it is, you know, it's like a pit stop. They stop there. They're like, oh, this looks good. And then they, you know, carry on. But I think for other people, they get stuck there. I think that this acts as a block, basically, because this offers something 
you know, I said before, I'll say it again, transitioning from Zionism into humanism. When you understand the situation, it's crystal clear. You have to choose which side you're on. Liberal Zionism offers something in between that is kind of a feel-good situation where you don't really have to take the next step. And the way I see it, between the two things, between Zionism and humanism, there's a big black void. And you have to take a leap of faith in order to switch from one side to the other. And liberal Zionism kind of keeps you from doing that. It, it, it's kind of... A, a, and the other problem is that those who overcome that these lies of liberal Zionism, the, you know, the ground is taken from under their feet. I mean, it's, a, it's a, psychologically, it's a very difficult situation to be in to realize that everything that I was told is a lie, that I'm not the good guy in the story, that, that no, uh, that, like every single thing, all these myths and all these stories that we're being told since childhood, they're all lies. That's a very yeah. scary thing to deal with. Those folks are like... Can we save Zionism? And there's no way to save it. You cannot save Zionism. You have to let it go. Exactly. I, I compare Zionism to the KKK. Okay. Zionism to Judaism is like is like the KKK to Christianity. It's like ISIS to Islam. Okay? Hey, we they said that and they deleted our video. We said that about we the ISIS thing. Yeah, but you say it again and we'll clip it for the promo. <laughs> you you were speaking about demographics as well, right? The only way that they exist is through artificial demographics and nothing is more apparent than this story that came out where it says the occupation soars to fourth in global happiness who wasn't polled palestinians right like exactly. this is an artificial poll where even the people who are inside of the occupation are like Damn, this is suspect. Not only that those uh, under military occupation are not being polled, also those who are second-class citizens, those who are not among the privileged group, 20% of the population, who are Palestinian, 48ers, we call them, Palestinians, citizens of the state of Israel. So they were never a majority. You know, the fact that they cleansed the land doesn't mean that they became a majority. It's like they only, they're only a majority in their limited bubble. Because Zionism is inherently racist supremacist. Post-apartheid South Africa, people didn't all of a sudden become anti-apartheid. Post-Nazism, Germans didn't all of a sudden come out of Nazism, but, but it was no longer legitimate. The same will also happen in Palestine. Zionism, or what Zionism represents, will no longer be legitimate. Yeah, so let's get out of the occupation and start talking about uh, Germany, actually. You were, went on trial in Germany and it were acquitted. Can you tell us about that? I was living in Germany for about three years. I also realized that Germany is the most Zionist place on earth. So I went there to be basically a thorn in the ass of Zionism. During my time there, we held all sorts of actions, disrupting different uh, Israeli representatives um, on so-called Israel Day and so on. And one of these actions were basically when a, an Israeli member of Knesset, she was part of Yair Lapid's party and she came to speak at the Humboldt University in Berlin and then there were three of us two Israeli dissidents and one Palestinian from Gaza uh, in the audience and uh, I stood up with holding the uh, UN report on apartheid in my hand and I was telling her that she's not a legitimate represent representative that she's a representative of a criminal apartheid state and on and on eventually when I left the room, I handed her the report, I told her in Hebrew to read it. Ben Stavit, uh, my co-defendant in Germany and also my co-defendant here in the UK, uh, she stood up and she told her in Hebrew that that member of Knesset, that she has the blood of the children of Gaza on her hands, and she was escorted out. And finally, at the end of the talk, uh, Majid from Gaza, he uh, asked a question and left. For that, we were taken to court. Eventually, we were acquitted, and that's pretty much it uh, but but there was real pressure on the on the german government and on the berlin mayor to take us to court actually the berlin mayor was told that he will be placed on the list of the top 10 anti-semites in the world because he is allowing these activities in his city and they were referring both to our action and some demonstration uh, that took place there so there was a yeah. lot of pressure on them to take us to court can you talk about the relationship between Zionism, the state of Germany and the occupation and how the basically the German government is actively enforcing 
the occupation's policies and one of the most, as you said, one of the most Zionist forces in Europe. In Germany, Germany is a special case because you have Zionism across the board. They passed a motion in the Bundestag, in the German parliament, which equates BDS with anti-Semitism. A wall-to-wall support for BDS equals anti-Semitism. This is the situation in Germany. You have uh, journalists who, in their war contract, they are not allowed to uh, criticize Israel, for example. That's the situation. And obviously, people are being targeted very easily on the false, uh, under the false accusations of uh, anti-Semitism and so on. I have issues with German society today, not only because of its horrid past, but because of its horrid present. It seems like uh, Germans are afraid to think for themselves. They're afraid of their own shadow. So obviously, I just told you about how it is in the German uh, political uh, arena, but also uh, among German society, uh, there is pretty much the same thing. Uh, you are allowed to be critical to a certain degree, but but it's all within sort of like, it's a very limited uh, um, yeah, way in which you are allowed to criticize or to rebel. Even, even, even when you rebel, you have to do it within the system. They say, in Germany, they say that even on the way to the revolution, Germans will buy a, a train ticket once when they head to the revolution. Well, nice of them to buy tickets. Usually they're, they're just forcing us on trains. But I saw, speaking of that, actually, <laughs> um, I saw that in a Mondawise article, in an off-record comment to journalist, Israeli Berlin embassy spokeswoman Adi Farjahan said that Israel had an interest to maintain German guilt feelings because without them, Israel would be just another country as far as they're concerned. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm happy you mentioned it. Okay. In Germany, definitely they instill fear. And I said that Germans are afraid to think for themselves. They're afraid of their own shadow. But even in general, I think that, you know, fear is a debilitating factor. It kind of suppresses you from actually taking action. While the opposite to that is actually taking responsibility, which is actually encouraging us to take action. So for Germans and also for Israelis, uh, Israeli activists who, you know, who deal with Palestinian uh, issues and who do care about Palestinians, a lot of time the, the there's a lot of guilt involved. This like this sense of uh, of guilt. And look, I don't feel guilty for being born in a certain place, for being a white male, hetero, whatever, uh, living in a as one among the privileged group. But the question is, what do I do about it? So with privilege also comes responsibility, and taking responsibility is a, a force for action rather than guilt, which is a force for inaction. I think Uncle so Ben said that in Spider-Man. <laughs> so I think that also for Germans, uh, it is both instilled in them that guilt and fear, and also it is an easier way for them because I don't think the German society has actually dealt with its horrible past. It is much easier for them to blindly support another race state, which is based on the differentiation between Ubermenschen and Untermenschen in order not to deal with their inherent racism and supremacy. And in Germany, there is something that is above any law, which is called the Staatsreson, the reasoning of the state, which says that the role of post-Nazi Germany is to protect the existence of the state of Israel, no matter what. And this is something that's above any law. Thank you so much for saying that. That's a that's a topic that a number of people have a tough time grappling with. But you were able to see that you had privilege, use it, and feel the responsibility that brought you to joining Palestine Action, where you ended up smashing up an Elbit weapon factory. So first of all, um, I am uh, facing trial in three weeks or so, uh, nine of us uh, are uh, heading to the Bristol Crown Court on the 17th of April. Everyone's invited. It'll be most probably a very interesting uh, trial. It is a jury trial. I think that there is a necessity here to take action. Understanding those crimes against humanity that are being perpetrated, understanding that we have a responsibility here, understanding that People's lives are at risk every moment because of that. And I know personally 
people who were bombed, some survived, some didn't, by uh, Elbit drones, killer drones. So is uh, uh, a very good reason to take action against Elbit. And Elbit is not only Israel's largest arms manufacturer, manufacturing for everything from rifles to white phosphorus and cluster munition. The latter ones are actually illegal to be used against the civilian population, and they were used uh, in Gaza and in Lebanon. Elbit is also using these uh, killer drones, for example, which have been perfected uh, over the course of the 51-day massacre in Gaza called Protective Edge. They have introduced what's called uh, what they called the premature drone, which was not yet market ready, and they made it marketable over the course of that so-called war over the bodies of Palestinians. Elbit staff was on the ground taking every flight, basically making every takeoff and every landing of these Hermes 900 drones while the Israeli Air Force was uh, dropping the missiles. So Elbit is responsible for, at the very least, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And that means that the UK government has a lot of responsibility to to stop them. No, man, I think I just want to say thank you so much for like all the work that you've done, everything you've done to disrupt and bring about, you know, uh, the facts of the ground, the, the you're a fierce advocate for Palestinian liberation. And uh, you've really, truly like used your privilege and your platform in an admirable way. And it's a way that, you know, if you're somebody who is inside the occupation, and you are starting to question a lot of the things that are happening around you, I think that you are a great example for a path forward. So I just want to say thanks so much for what you do. Thank you. And especially taking the example from Palestinian-led groups and supporting them and participating in their actions, I think that's super important and key. Just showing how anti-Zionist Jews and and anti-Zionist Jewish Israelis can can best support Palestinians. Do you yeah, like you're a great. Yeah, go ahead. Just really, I was going to say you're like a great example of somebody being like, you know what? I was wrong. I'm introduced to new information, and now I'm going to change the course of my life as a result. And you really went in, like you're on trial. You know what I mean? So I appreciate you. I appreciate you know the path that you've walked and. uh everything that you're going to do in the future. And we wish you the and all the other Palestine action activists the the best of luck at at trial. That's been another episode of the Palestine pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and find our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.